there are also countries and hospitals where this is performed by one robot, uh, sorry, one surgeon. Uh, meaning that that surgeon is busy for eight and a half hours and the first about four hours are very boring but also very tedious bone drilling and it be, makes their fingers go numb and things like that. So our robot steps in and takes over that first very tedious part, uh, does it faster but at the same uh, accuracy and then of course the uh, surgeon is still fresh to go into the much more complex and much more precise part of the operation. You're listening to Building the Future, a podcast by Cadence Science Partner. And my name is Rudy van Beurden. In this podcast, I meet innovators, trailblazers and bright minds who are busy building the future. Your next doctor will be a robot. Well, if you think this is a far-fetched idea, you'd better keep listening. Today, we're discussing the statement with three visionaries who have some outspoken opinions about this topic. Experts who are working in the field on a daily basis and know everything about technology in healthcare and its potential. And we've picked an appropriate location to discuss this topic. The Noviotech campus in Nijmegen. Well, here we are having three guests surrounding me at this very table. Um, right next to me, Jasmijn Kok. You are co-founder of the spin-off Juno Perinatal Healthcare, if I'm correct, working with some colleagues on it. Next to you is Bram de Beer, system architect at Eindhoven Medical Robots. Robotics, actually, that's it. And Roel Baumans researcher behavioral science institute the bsi of the radboud university here in nijmegen a warm welcome to all of you and we were speaking about the weather already didn't we bram because you came here by car without an air conditioning and it's quite warm already outside yes it is yeah a warm welcome i would like to kick it off just like we do in other episodes of this uh, building the future podcast and that's by mentioning the statement and then first and foremost take your views on it so the statement is your next doctor will be a robot what do you think Jasmine? i agree you do agree i think um that the human mind is only capable of so much. You have to learn everything you do by experience and mm -hmm. see patterns. Um, and doctors nowadays, they go to seminars and they learn from each other. But I think that um, with the technology we have today, we can combine the knowledge of humans and of data and then provide better healthcare. Fair enough, that's already an argument. Let's continue quickly to Bram before he swifts his mind. What do you think? Do you agree or disagree? So I, uh, I disagree with the statement that uh, definitely the next doctor will be uh, a robot because, well, the next doctor, we're not there yet in technology to actually do this. Uh, it would be very nice to combine everything, but uh, we as a company also uh, concentrate way more on building tools that allow surgeons to become better at their jobs and to perform almost impossible surgeries. Yeah, but the surgeon, the doctor, him or herself will always be there in your yes. view. Yeah. And what about the rule? 
Yes, I disagree too with this statement. I think that uh, doctors play an important role, especially for the psychology of the patients uh, themselves. They would like to be sure that they are in the hands of a capable doctor. So for the very far future to come, I think that uh, uh, physical or that robots will play a supporting role, but the ultimate decision will always be with a human doctor. Fair enough. Um, to stay with you, Rule, you have a lot of experience as well with experiments in which uh, robots yes. played a, a key role. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, what we have done is that we have looked at some uh, administrative activities that uh, healthcare professionals often do, like uh, uh, taking uh, uh, questionnaires from patients. So we asked patients a lot of questions with a robot and we uh, uh, asked them, well, how do you feel about this? And it turned out that most uh, patients really like to, to have a robot interviewing them. Also, if it's more beneficial for them because the doctor in the end will have more time for him to discuss their uh, ultimate concerns. Mm -hmm. And uh, then uh, the more administrative tasks you can, you can uh, um, give to the robot. Mm -hmm. And this, if I'm, if I'm correct, is done by the Pepper robot, isn't it? Yes. Being done in some hospitals here in Nijmegen. And that's a portable robot. So the robot actually moves around. Yeah, it's a humanoid robot of uh, 1 meter 20 high and 26 kilos. And it has a very friendly appearance. And that is what uh, appeals to many people, especially the older adults. And these are the group where we uh, focused on. And we found that they, they uh, even thought that uh, doctors who were supported by robots give better care than doctors who were not supported by robots. Fair enough. But still, in the end, they want to have a human face. Yeah. The, the guest here around the table might have some extra questions for you as well. We will come back to you, Rule, but maybe across the table, Bram, you are also working on robots, robotics, but it's actually quite some different robotics, isn't it? Yes, this is a completely different robot because uh, where the Pepper robot is, of course, a humanoid, uh, we focus way more on actually performing an operation. So uh, we are not interviewing patients, we are, we are operating on patients and that requires a completely different robot. Uh, because it goes from, well, relatively low-tech with a lot of psychology uh, to very high-tech and a lot of precision that is necessary. So, completely different field. It's real high-precision surgeons, actually. Surgeons are being, using these robots to deliver. Yes. So, we operate on the skull uh, for now. Uh, we are venturing into other, uh, other parts of the body as well. But for now, we are in the skull, uh, where, of course, precision is key because there are so many important structures there and we don't want to hit any of those. Yeah. And similar to Jasmijn, uh, you have a, an entrance into the field of health in, in another way. You, at heart, are really a diehard engineer, if I may say so. You've worked with Google and with CERN internationally, but now you really venture into the, in the healthcare world as well as Jasmijn did because you did something completely different but now you co-found this uh, you co-founded this spin-off 
Can you tell us and the listeners something about what it is what you are doing? Of course. So um, our spin-off, Juno Perinatal Healthcare, is connected to a research um, done by a European uh, consortium. So we are working together with universities in Milan and Aachen, for example, um, to build the next Cuvosa. Uh, so uh, uh, in English it's called uh, NICU. What we do is we make an artificial womb. We create uh, an environment that simulates as much as possible the um, the wombs, uh, the mother's womb, mm-hmm. um, in order to increase uh, the healthcare for extremely preterm-born infants. And extremely preterm means uh, younger than 28 uh, weeks. And currently the data on these, um, yeah. The healthcare for these uh, babies, it's it's not so great. So each year, 800,000 um, babies are born extremely preterm worldwide, and of these uh, babies in the Netherlands, 50% dies, and of the 50% that does survive, um, one third only is healthy, and two thirds has some sort of uh, handicap. Um, and it's mainly caused by uh, brain injury that's caused by um, not enough oxygen because the babies, they're forced to breathe in air, but their lungs aren't developed enough yet. Um, and because, yeah, they can't uh, breathe yet, but they are forced to in the current uh, system, um, yeah, their health isn't the best start for them to begin their journey into life. Mm-hmm. And that is what we try to resolve with our uh, artificial womb. Yeah. So now we're getting to know the three of you a little bit better. You've got three totally different perspectives on the field of health, working on various aspects as well. But Jasmine, maybe for you, what is your personal motivation to dive into this very specific team? Well, it's actually, um, yeah, data driven. I saw the numbers of healthcare of the past 10 years for the extremely preterm born and I didn't see any progress. And what I'm really interested in is uh, complex projects that can actually have an impact on uh, healthcare. And what this consortium is doing is a moonshot project. It's super complex. A lot of expertise is required. There's a lot of risk that we will fail, (laughs) actually. Um, And that is very interesting to me. So that's why I joined the project. Because you do like a challenge. I definitely do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like it, definitely. Um, and then getting back to the statement, your next doctor is a robot. Jasmine, you were the only one saying, yes, I actually do agree. And you mentioned maybe artificial intelligence or combined wisdom or knowledge. Yes, something that uh, the university in Eindhoven that we also work with um, is investigating is uh, the digital twin. And I'm really curious what the other uh, experts might uh, have to say about that. But what we do is we make uh, actually a digital version of our patient, which is the baby. Um, And that version uh, combined with data of the population in the rest of the world, um, we use that to help doctors to make decisions. So we also have a physical model, which is a 3D printed um, baby, a mannequin, um, and it is connected to that digital twin. And that physical model we use to train the doctors. So sure, it's quite a bold statement to say that your next doctor will be a robot. And it's easy for me to say because I don't work with the robots and you do. But still, I do really believe that uh, the way that we make decisions, that doctors make decisions now, for example, to do a C-section instead of a natural uh, birth, that is just not efficient enough yet. And I do believe a robot could do better. Who wants to respond? 
Well, a digital twin is a very interesting development, I think, because then you can try to make a personalized image of a patient. And the challenge uh, for me would be in which part of the patients are you modeling in detail and where you take more a global approach. Uh, I think if, for example, the, uh, the lungs are the biggest problem, then how do you model the lungs and perhaps the rest you can uh, keep aside for the, for the moment, for example. And then, um, yeah, these... these natural complexes, uh, com uh, processes are, are very complex. So I th also think that uh, they are uh, st stochastically uh, challenging because you, you don't know exactly which way they will go. So it's very interesting development, I think. Is this something super new in the health space? Because I did hear about it in the construction world. So whenever they have to build a new bridge, they first make a 3D model, which is called a digital twin, and then they test and then they put in new materials and all that. But is this something entirely new? Yeah, so digital twins are indeed uh, just simulations. Uh, they have been around since we could build simulations. And doing this for a human is, of course, interesting. But the question becomes, what are you doing in detail and what are you basically doing in broad strokes? Because you can't simulate everything in detail. There's simply not enough computing power or, well, the ability to program that. So even though it is very interesting technology, we are not at a point where we can say it's mature enough to use it as an actual decision maker for what we want to achieve. Mm -hmm. What we actually do uh, in uh, Eindhoven is we will use it. Um, and the reason why is that uh, for us, the, um, it's very hard to test on these infants. For us, it must be actually the first time right. It's like building a rocket when going to the moon. So the actual reason why we are using this digital twin is to make sure that we can test our, our um, device before we can actually use it. And yes, we will need clinical trials, of course, um, but still to prevent as much as possible to have to use animals or um, yeah, actual human beings um, with testing. This is partly why we use this and it isn't perfect. Um, it's correct. And we will focus on the most important parts, for example, um, the heart and the lungs um, to simulate that. Um, but yeah, for us, it will be, it's not science fiction anymore that, that we can actually use it to, to test and to, to develop medical devices. It's very interesting also because uh, with control theory, you already try of, uh, often to c control difficult processes by having a model of these processes and using the output of this model to, uh, to uh, steer your original process. So uh, if you have your patient and you have the model of the patient and you see that the model of the patient does something different than the patient, how do you uh, uh, use that feedback to change the parameters in the womb. Yeah, and that is definitely correct. And also um, for us, it's the question of how, how much can you use this system because there isn't so much data yet on externally preterm born because they're in the, in the mother. So you can't take actual measurements so, so, uh, so well. So we'll actually have to wait until we can use the device to measure because when there is a baby in the womb, you can measure much easily. And then you can use that data to also help mothers while the baby is still in there because you know what's going on. So, mm -hmm. but that's long-term. 
Yeah, yeah. One day you will get there. So the technology, things should be viable and things can grow, obviously. But also hospitals and even more important, maybe patients have a certain opinion about new technologies. Roel, can you tell us a little bit about the introduction of the Pepper robot and how people reacted to that? Were they all happy or... Yeah, well, first we tried it with uh, healthy older adults who were still living at home. So we didn't want to test first with more vulnerable patients at, uh, 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 at the clinic. And already they said, well, if I would be uh, uh, admitted to the hospital, I think a robot like Pepper would be a good idea to have him ask me questions if that saves time for the healthcare professionals. And uh, later we uh, tried the same with patients at uh, uh, the outpatient clinic and there we uh, uh, measured the same results. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also with some elder elderly patients, wasn't uh, also it? Also with older adults, uh, people uh, above 70 years of age. Yeah, yes. and they were actually quite open to it, if I'm correct, but their children who were a little bit younger, they said, well, you're not going to use a robot on my mother or on my father. Exactly, they were often more concerned than uh, than their their parents. Yes, that's true. The parents said, just bring it on and let's see yes, what exactly, it will bring. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay, back to uh, Bram, because you're also, the, well, the... the highly robotics like the precision tools they are around for a little while already mm-hmm. and um, in your case the patient sometimes doesn't even realize what's going on because maybe he's fast asleep obviously during I, the I hope so yes yeah, yeah yeah but then the people who use them they benefit heavily isn't it the surgeons using the equipment yeah so depending on the the robot you built for surgery uh, of course there's a big difference in the different types of robots but yes there is a huge benefit for the surgeon so in our case uh, one of our surgeon uh, surgeries is an eight and a half hour surgery which is uh, sometimes performed by two surgeons uh, one doing the actual drilling of the bone to reach the operating area then one doing the removal of the tumor, which this operation is for. Uh, but there are also countries and hospitals where this is performed by one robot, uh, sorry, one surgeon. Uh, meaning that that surgeon is busy for eight and a half hours and the first about four hours are very boring, but also very tedious bone drilling. And it be, makes their fingers go numb and things like that. So our robot, steps in and takes over that first very tedious part uh, does it faster but at the same uh, accuracy and then of course the uh, surgeon is still fresh to go into the much more complex and much more precise part of the operation uh, from their point of view of course the first part is not supposed to harm the patient but the second part where you remove a tumor uh, that becomes so close to the brain and to the nerves and things like that, that it, um, it is actually very, very risky to do that when you don't, uh, are not at your full performance at that point. Mm-hmm. So in your case, you should know everything, obviously, about the physical surroundings and what such an expert needs. Well, rule your, if I'm correct, you focus more on the psychological aspect as well, the well-being maybe, even before there will be surgery or medication or whatsoever. Yes, that's a a big part. Yeah, but Bram, how do do you get to that knowledge? As being an engineer, you step into that world, you want to build a robot. How do you interact with these experts? How do you distract? Yeah, you talk to them. 
and you look at the operations. So you go to an operating room and you see what's going on. And the first time, it's all chaos. You won't make sense of any of anything that's happening. But at some point, you will learn what the operation is and you will see that sometimes they have trouble with certain parts of the operation. And you try to solve those. So you try to discuss with them, why do you do this in a certain way? And most of the time, the answer is just, that's what I'm taught. This is what my, uh, my professor uh, or my, the doctor I learned from, uh, this is what they told me to do. Mm-hmm. And so this is what I'm doing. Yeah. And yeah, we try to look at that from a technology point of view, which is optimize it, see where you can improve and then actually improve it. Yeah, definitely. I do understand such an answer because you do not want a doctor who is improvising every single day, time and time and again, obviously. So obviously he or her is following a protocol. Um, Sorry, could I maybe just ask one more question? Because you mentioned the second part was the more difficult, precise one. Wouldn't you want that part to be done by a robot then? Uh, That would be ideal. The problem is that, um, uh, so we have to steer our robot with something. We currently use uh, CT images to do that. Uh, CT images, of course, being uh, 3D uh, x-rays. And we can only see the bone on that. More importantly, even if we could see the rest with an MRI scan, for example, uh, the rest can move. So the robot has no eyes, so it can't see when it's moving. So we have to then assume that things are on a certain spot in in space. And if they move, then that becomes a problem. Obviously, you would want that second part to also be performed by a robot, but it has to be a very precise robot that knows exactly what it's doing. And currently, that's just outside of the scope of possibilities of what we can do with robotics. But if we fast forward five years? You meant 25 years? Okay, yeah. Okay. Yes. Then, then at some point, there will be uh, enough progress that you can do these things. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Jasmine, in your field of, of research now, and as well as validating what you're... Because you actually were subsidized, if I'm correct. And it runs until 2024? Yes. So we have um, a deadline. Yeah. <laughs> 2024, then we should have a prototype that works. We promised that, and we have to do that. So we will. Um, and then we uh, want to start um, the preclinical clinical trials and certification processes and production. Um, that's all in the future still, but we are planning about that's why we are already um, looking at market research at next rounds of funding because we really want our research to reach the market and because yeah it takes a lot of time and also a lot of um, preparing the society for this um, this is something we are already working on parallel to the yeah currently quite fundamental still uh, research mm-hmm. uh, but our timeline would be uh, 2030 to have a product that could actually be used and um, yeah in the in hospitals to help extremely preterm borns to have a better better chance of survival and uh, and healthy and, life. and where do you start in 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 entering the market who do you speak to where, where do you go to coming up with the idea of an artificial womb it's like yeah wow it's futuristic actually the the idea came from uh, 
gynecologist in our research group. Um, he has been working for, uh, I think, the past uh, 50 years on, on this topic. And he was still in college when he saw uh, on a congress uh, a little goat uh, underwater. And the goat was actually, um, yeah, growing uh, in the outside womb uh, or an, uh, an artificial womb. And that experiment didn't go so well, but we have uh, increased our research and we have uh, much better results now. But that is actually where the moment uh, where the idea arose to start this. And we now received the 3 million um, 2020, Resin 2020 uh, funds mm -hmm. uh, to get our consortium together to have all the expertise in-house to work on the prototype and then to in 2030 deliver something that can be used uh, yeah. for patients. And you actually want to optimize that time in the womb, whether it be artificial and in the preparations for this very talk, you, you even said, well, it can be even longer than 40 weeks because you're not limited to the physical measurements of the, the mother. I, I did say that to trigger you a little bit. All right. We are bound by um, regulations in different countries and in the countries, the regulations and law, they, they differ. For example, uh, I gave the example of a patient of this gynecologist being transferred to Germany because there they were allowed to help the, the extremely preterm born. And in the Netherlands, the rule is that under uh, 24 weeks old, you cannot help a baby. So it's considered... Uh, miscarriage or uh, yeah, just a dead baby. And in Germany, you are able to help. So those are the laws and restrictions that we work within. But if you just set them aside, why wouldn't you leave the infant in and maybe have it for 46 weeks? Because we are bound by the size of the mother's uh, hips, so to say. Um, and perhaps if you take that aside, uh, it would be healthier to, to do that. But Again, we are not doing that. All right, clear, clear enough. Roel, you're working as a researcher within the Radboud University and uh, we were talking about various robots or robotics. Mm. What else do you see mm. entering the hospital anytime soon? Um, I also see uh, more like the virtual, uh, uh, the virtual agents, like the virtual robots, which you have on a screen, and there you can talk to, and they talk back just like robots. Robots, the physical versions, are a uh, well a way the computer is 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 uh, um, uh, built. But you can also uh, use the same software to use a virtual avatar. And that may also be a very convenient way. Um, there are differences because the social presence of a physical robot is very much different from a virtual agent. But in uh, certain uh, situations, it may very well be that it's much more convenient for a person to have such virtual agents next to uh, a person's bed bed for example uh, to be informed about his medicine and when he need to take them uh, about the surgery which is upcoming or uh, the results of that or uh, anything which uh, happens during the course of his stay in the hospital mm -hmm. uh, which he has not been able to ask his uh, healthcare professionals others are there actually um, guidelines or is there policy within the within the hospital of like this is what we're going to enter or this is what we want to leave out outside of the door uh, well, you have, of course, medical device uh, guidelines and people have to uh, uh, device developers have to uh, uh, meet these uh, these guidelines, these requirements. So uh, these are there. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
but other than that, uh, these are also subject to change, like laws are subject to change. I mean, if we are now talking about 24 weeks, why in five years not about 22 weeks? Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, people change, technology change. So I think if the knowledge is acceptable and uh, without much risk for the patients, then uh, I think we can go further. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is uh, without saying it. It has to do with ethical views, obviously, on health and on basic rights, on human rights, on improvement, on on um, yeah, getting better. Actually, what are your thoughts about it, Bram and Jasmine? The ethical aspect is it something that you take into consideration, or you just build whatever that is possible? Uh, of course, we are also limited by the MDR, the regulations that are there for medical devices. Uh, so, no, we, we definitely take it into account, but of course, we see our ethics way more in when do we start clinical trials. So, how do we gather our preclinical work? Because you can cut a lot of corners and make it look like you're doing the right thing, but we deliberately choose to do more of the preclinical work before going to clinical. Since it is so risky to go to a patient and not have the right results from, in our case, our robot. But I think that goes for every medical device out there. Definitely. And it is really good if people consider that before putting their, uh, uh, their, their product on the market just to make money. Yeah, I see uh, Jasmine nodding because that's, that's a topic that's relevant for you, obviously, as well. Definitely, yeah. And something that we get a lot is that when you say artificial womb it, people think that you want to start growing from the egg to a baby that is not what we're doing because we're trying to in, uh, improve the current healthcare. but um, that is something that would raise a lot of ethical questions um, but then again i come back to your point that the world is changing and laws are changing for example if you look at um, in vitro fertilization um, I looked it up after our uh, prep, it was in 1978 uh, that they discovered it, which is quite recent. And if you look at the world today, everybody almost knows somebody who has been in contact or has used that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so normal now. So what is ethical and what isn't, it's it's actually something that is written in laws and regulations in, for medical device with clinical trials. But it's also something that society thinks of. Definitely, yeah. So uh, I find it very interesting to think, uh, to think about this. Um, we want to prepare the society for what is coming up in technology. Um, but I think our, our biggest challenge here still lies in the technology itself because it's so complex. Uh, but nevertheless, a relevant topic indeed. Yeah, yeah, this is like a parallel process that has to be uh, going on. So th the very practical aspect, so the baby is within the womb of the mother and then at a certain point, the baby needs to be transferred. Yes, yes. <laughs> so how is this going? Um, so uh, in uh, actually our partner in Aachen, they are uh, developing the, the prototype itself where mm -hmm. the baby is put under uh, water, so to say, to prevent the breathing. But in uh, Eindhoven, they are working on a transfer device where um, and also a platform where you can do the canalization, which means that after the baby is um, either by C-section or natural birth, it's born. 
um, you cut the umbilical cord and uh, you need to be quick. Three minutes, that's what the, the doctors have, to connect the uh, baby's umbilical cord with the artificial placenta. And the artificial placenta, something that uh, Aachen is also working on, uh, it will provide uh, blood that has nut nutrition and oxygen. And it's uh, quite tricky to get that right in three minutes because it's so tiny. And there's the reflex of the uh, veins, for example, to become even tighter when you cut the umbilical cord. So actually, this is one of the technical issues that we are now trying to work uh, out, how to do that. But uh, even such a small thing, it's, uh, it's a big challenge. Oh, you you mentioning a moonshot project, but this is like trying to get to Mars. <laughs> It's it's a huge challenge indeed. Yeah. But what keeps you going? Like every now and then you should succeed at several aspects, obviously. Yeah, well, there are so many different aspects and we have a lot of partners working on that. And we have a planning together with deadlines. And it's very um, motivating to see every part being developed and falling uh, making the pieces fit together. So it does feel it's a very nice consortium to work in. It, I know the academic world, I'm not from there and it's quite a difficult one. It can be quite uh, competitive. Uh, but I have the feeling that within our team, we are really working together to reach this moonshot project. So I think that's what keeps us all going. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Bram, you're working on your technology and the one thing you said because you worked in several other positions as a as the engineer but now you manage people as well is that something you see in the field that there's more like Jasmin is saying there's more collaboration like between the surgeons or other parties that have to deliver aspects of the robots is it becoming more and more open because it's such that, that last part, I don't know, but because I haven't worked in medical before, but mm -hmm. uh, I definitely see the difference between pure technology and technology combined with medicine. Because in, in the medical world, of course, you're not the expert. Well, I'm not the expert, I should say. I'm an engineer. I make things that are technical and that I fully understand how they work. But if it comes to the uh, combining that with the human body and healthcare, it becomes so far out of my well, field that I can't really answer the questions anymore. So I need the experts to give me uh, hints on where I need to go and then I can propose something. But definitely managing those kind of, uh, well, interactions is, is a real challenge because uh, we don't speak the medical language and uh, medical people don't speak the engineering languages. So it becomes kind of an, uh, you need to bridge the gap. It mm. becomes very hard to, to communicate well and to make sure that everyone is on the same page. And it actually takes two to tango. In the previous episode we did, episode number two, we already spoke about there should be a benefit for the patient, but also if you implement new stuff, then it went from your hospital will be your living room in the near future. But then the specialist in the in the hospital should update themselves as well and, and should invite new technologies. Is this this, this happening rule within the hospitals? Uh, yes, it's a kind of a, a iteration, a kind of a collaboration between both. I mean, uh, if we keep talking to each other and uh, they give some ideas, we have some ideas, uh, other people have some ideas, and so you, uh, uh, so you make further steps. And uh, when you keep talking to each other, I think uh, uh, many, many solutions can be found. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Looking back uh, yet again to the statement, your next doctor will be a robot. Did you change your opinion during the last half hour? No, I, I thought about it a lot, and I think your next uh, your next doctor will uh, will be a doctor, a human doctor. He will be ultimately responsible for uh, your your healthcare. Mm-hmm. But I think robots robots will play an important role in your uh, healthcare, in your stay in the hospital like uh, Bram is saying, or you will be saying. But in the end, I think a gynecologist will say, well, you have a lovely daughter. But maybe if it takes years and years, you know, I'm in my early 30s, if I keep track of my health and I stay out of the hospital for 30 or 35 years, touch wood, touch wood, if I'm very lucky, um, maybe by, by, by that term, 30 years in the future. Uh, that I think it, you, you should ask people uh, that. I, the, the, the people uh, have to undergo their treatment. Mm-hmm. And if people change in 30 years, then you might have a case. You But mean whether they allow it to be a robot? Yes. yes. And if they still and, persist on and, it being a human they, being? Well, whether they will trust a robot with, uh, with those kind of talks or that they just want to have this person they trust to tell them you are doing a good job. You are, I, I think as long as people uh, are still uh, psychologically uh, uh, dependent on the other people and how they feel and that will be the most important thing. Yeah, so that's actually a very important aspect you're mentioning right now while we're nearing the finish line of this very conversation is that safety and being being heard, being seen by a doctor. That's a very important aspect as well for patients. That's why uh, you also have to uh, involve patient organizations in these type of developments. Yeah, yeah. Also a good thing to uh, bring to the table. Bram, what about you? Did you just did do did you change your opinion? No, I did not change my opinion. Even though mm-hmm. if we have the scope way longer, we were talking about 25 years. Um 30 yeah, years. If, if you're looking into the future that far, mm-hmm. uh, but your statement was your next doctor, but still. Uh if you look into the future with 30 years, then of course computers will be much, much better than humans. So it's not even a competition. A, a, a 1,000 euro computer will probably have the same uh, capacity as all the humans in the world together. So it's not a fair competition at this point, assuming Moore's law, of course. But that is so far into the future that that is, first of all, not my next doctor. But second, yeah, we can't really see whether that is actually going to happen or whether something completely different uh, is is on our path by mm-hmm. then. Would you personally let yourself be treated by a robot? I actually worked with one of the, uh, not the Pepper robot, but a similar robot, and I find it very entertaining. So I find them better than the normal hospital personnel because they have <laughs> they have more time for you. They okay. have infinite time. They are also infinitely friendly. And uh, yeah, that makes for a whole different interaction. Of course, I also interact with computers quite a lot. So I have no problem telling my screen what to do. Yeah, so I think that's, uh, for, for me, it's definitely not a problem to get Your treated by nature. a robot. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Bram. And Jasmine, you were the only one who agreed. Your next doctor, well, maybe in the far, far future. I still agree. Yeah. Um, and it's also maybe about the trust. I, I like that you mentioned that, because if you say, 
who do you trust more, a human with errors or a computer? Of course, they are a bit rigid sometimes, um, but yeah, I'd like to stick to my uh, to my point. Yeah, yeah. But me personally, I'm, I I do not often visit hospitals, but I get a little bit anxiety in my belly if there should be purely robots greeting me and doing my surgery and all of that. So I'm not too sure yet, but I think we're evolving slowly but surely. And these friendly robots should be there as well to get used to in the first place, I guess. Yes, because uh, also not every healthcare professional uh, that you have uh, even have the same relationship with as uh, as another one. I mean, there may be differences there too. Yeah. You trust a certain doctor, but another one you don't trust. Yeah. That's also a psychological thing. So should we then give the pepper a personal character and personal outings that you can absolutely, connect to? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, robots should have a kind of a personality that fits to the person that they are caring for. So uh, you have different robots with different characters. Uh, some are a bit grumpy and some are always friendly. And some people like... Either one of them. Yeah, either one of them. Yeah. yeah. Maybe for now we can agree on first asking my parents kindly to test the robots out on them, you know, with the Pepper robot uh, included and then see how they react on it. And then maybe afterwards I feel myself comfortable uh, to follow suit. All right. Um, it's a wrap. You've listened to Building the Future, a podcast by Cadan Science Partner. And thanks to our guests, Bram de Beer from Eindhoven Medical Robotics. Jasmijn Kok from Juno Perinatal Healthcare. And Roel Baumans from Behavioral Science Institute, the BSI, from Radboud University. This episode was recorded in a building from Cadan Science Partner at the Novio Tech Campus in Nijmegen, the hotspot for health and high tech. Thanks to all of you. If you want to find out more about this podcast or our guest, go to cadans.com slash podcast. Here you'll also learn more about Cadans Science Partner and how it connects innovative organizations and ecosystems throughout Europe, helping them to work on sustainable solutions for the future. And do not forget to subscribe to this podcast in your favorite app so you won't miss our upcoming episodes. Thanks for listening and my name is Rudy van Beurden.